0: The thing about really, really good fiddlers, convincing performance fiddlers, is uh, you you have a choice of notes, your taste of the notes that you play, the ability to play them correctly and not hit sour notes, uh, your choice of uh, phrasing, how you do that, the tone that you get out of the instrument, and... uh, of course, your knowledge of playing certain tunes. But I think the the final ingredient is the fire that you put into it.
1: Welcome to Rosin' the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. I'm Joe McHugh. In 2018, my wife, Paul, and I traveled to eastern Kentucky to attend the Fraley Family Music Festival that is held each year at Carter Cave State Park. The festival was started by the late fiddler J.P. Fraley and his wife, Anadine, who played the guitar. I got to know J.P. and had the highest regard for his style of fiddling and also his skill as a storyteller. I will feature his music and stories in another Rosin the Bow podcast, but for this episode, we get to spend time with Tony Ellis. Tony's a wonderful musician, who for many years played with the legendary band Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys. He is best known for his banjo playing, but he is also a gifted fiddler and composer of lovely tunes. I caught up with Tony at the Fraley Family Festival, and here now is our conversation. Here we are. It is September 8th, 2018, and we are at Carter Cave State Park in eastern Kentucky, and I'm about to interview uh, Tony Ellis, man of many parts, and uh, I've been chasing this interview for three years, so I'm glad we finally found a time our paths could cross. So Tony, I always start with uh, people's personal story, because I, I think that destiny plays a part in how we we come to this thing we call music, which has many dimensions and many mysteries to it. And we were saying earlier, when I first came in, about it could be in the genes. It's, it's somewhere in us. could so.
0: be, it, it covers lots of territory. <laughs>
1: yeah. So tell me about your family and going back, and which side, and either the playing of instruments, or also were there any makers or collectors in the family? No
0: makers, no collectors. Uh, my grandmother played the banjo, learned to play when she was nine years old. And where was this? She she was, at, at that point in her life, she was in Jonesville, Virginia, and she learned to play a tune that she taught me called Stand Boy Stand from a Virginia State Senator when she was nine years old, which was a pre-Civil War a banjo tune. So,
1: you played that last night?
0: Yes, and... Uh, Oddly enough, that got picked up by Spongebob. It's on the pizza delivery episode. (laughs) (laughs) You're
1: playing it? Yes. Oh, Uh really? Well, you made your mark already. You could just retire.
0: Yeah, Spongebob's a good boy. He sends me a little royalty check every now and then. Oh, that's fun. That's fun.
1: (laughs) You know, I I heard that tune last night, and uh, it made me think of a tune that J.P. Fraley played. It sounded very similar, which is, The Fun's All Over.
0: There, there have been several titles attributed to that song or that tune. Uh, we were visiting; my wife and I were visiting her aunt down in North Carolina years ago, and uh, she had a an old uh, black fellow that was her chauffeur and uh, named Stanley, yeah, Stanley Smith. And uh, my wife said, "Get your banjo out and uh, play a tune for Stanley." So uh, I got it out, and I said, well, I'll, I'll just play you the first tune I ever learned, Stand, Boy, Stand. I didn't mention the title, and, uh, but that was the tune. And so I started playing it, and he jumped up on his feet. He said, that, that's Stand, Boy, Stand. Michael used to play that. So he knew it by that title. But I've heard people in Ohio call it something else, and the people in Missouri call it something else. So and you had,
1: some, you had some lyrics with that.
0: Stand, Boy, Stand. See old Mossy coming, up with your britches' legs and beat old Mossy running. The slaves were running away to freedom. And yeah. So that was all about that little tune.
1: That's great. So you knew your grandmother quite well, obviously. Oh, yes.
0: Yeah. She was my hero. She played the banjo and the fiddle and the piano. She was yeah, great yeah. fun. She was an artist. She was a trained artist and exhibited in lots of art exhibits.
1: Huh and anyone else in the family? Or was My she...
0: grandfather was an old-time fiddler. I have his fiddle, which is a really, really good fiddle. It's an old French fiddle uh, attributed to uh, Francios Lejeune made around 1775, and it, it's a wonderful instrument.
1: Any idea how he acquired something like that? No, I
0: have no idea. Uh, he had it up till his death, of course, and then he wanted it to stay in the family, so my sister ended up getting it, and uh, she played symphony stuff, uh, classical music. And The fiddle was slightly oversized, which was typical of old French instruments, and the uh, classical world doesn't like instruments that aren't on the perfect measurements, and uh, that's understandable because if, if you learn to play on a fiddle that uh, the The notes fall slightly in different place than they would on a standard uh, measurement. Uh, And if your instrument's in the shop and you have to borrow another one, then you're in trouble because you don't have the confidence to go reach for notes that you normally would on your instrument that you're used to. So therefore, they want everything on a perfect standard measurement. So uh, she ended up getting a nice Italian fiddle, and I ended up with Grandpa's fiddle, and that fine with me <laughs> i don't mind making sour notes
1: that's great uh, somebody had told me once i don't know how much truth there is in this but uh the reason the german and french violins often are a little bit larger
0: mm-hmm.
1: was uh they were tracing from the italians and every time they made that trace mark they were adding that pencil
0: width well that could be <laughs> yeah
1: so the um Last night, when you were saying that, uh, you told a story about Roy Acuff I thought it was pretty mm-hmm. good. Why don't you tell that story? Because I'm trying to get, again, at this sense of how young this idea or, or this passion for music can show itself. So what was that story?
0: Well, I'd heard my uh, grandfather play the fiddle and my grandmother play the banjo, so uh I had an interest in it. Granny would play banjo tune for me at night to go to sleep by instead of a bedtime story. And uh, so I, I loved uh, fiddle and banjo music. And we, I visited my grandparents in Harriman, Tennessee. I was, uh, I was six or seven or eight years old. And uh, I noticed a poster on the telephone pole on the sidewalk outside their house. And I walked out and looked at that poster and uh, saw a picture of a fellow named Roy Acuff. And he was uh, running for some big political office. I don't know if it was governor or what it was, but it was big, big to do. And uh, I looked at it and it had some other little pictures sandwiched around the the big picture. And one was he was holding a fiddle and uh, that caught my attention. So I ran in the house and. Tugged at my grandpa's shirt and I said, There's a fella running for governor out there on the telephone pole, and uh, you got to vote for him. He said, Why? I said, Because he plays the fiddle. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, a lot of people don't, I
1: think, realize in a way of how music, the, the role music plays, especially country music. Mm-hmm. Rural music in, uh, in politics in America. I mean, this going way back, I mean, even the Davy Crockett apparently played the fiddle and uh-huh. would pull it out when he was running for Congress. And uh, I lived in West Virginia for a number of years and I knew uh, Senator Robert Byrd. I got yes. to play with him once or twice. And uh, he used that fiddle in those early days to get himself elected there.
0: Joe Meadows, great fiddler, yeah. worked for Senator Byrd. And I'd known Joe as a young fellow. We used to uh, go courting together. We double-date, they called it back then. And uh, I called Joe, and I said, Joe, why don't you get Senator Byrd to run for president? And he said, well, I've talked to him about that, but he just doesn't like living out of a suitcase. And I guess that spoke volumes.
1: And somebody who knew him well, too, I can't remember who told me this, but he said that Senator Byrd would say to him, this is when he was— Leader of the Senate,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that he had a kind of rule that the last 10 minutes of every day, no matter how late the day went, before he left the office, he'd take out the fiddle and play it. And That's he felt rule. like it got him back to being in the real world and yep. back to his life.
0: Got his feet on the ground again.
1: There you
0: go.
1: <laughs> so this happened young, the Roy Acuff, the this uh, listening to the music. And so and And you're having two influences and and I've always been drawn to your music for that reason being a fiddler, I love the tunes you play and that you compose and uh on the fiddle, but you know you've made such a mark as a banjo, both player and composer and here you had the grandfather and the grandmother, both sides of the, of this this kind of music that early on didn't really have guitars it really was fiddle and banjo that was the core of it yeah. yeah
0: that was the that was the band, pretty much.
1: And I, I was uh, asking another fiddler banjo player that was here, and uh, it's the first time I'd asked that question, because we're getting both a little up, not up in years, but, you know, we're, we've had a long trip here on the earth and, uh, and a fun one, I think, in a lot of ways. But I said to him, which instrument do you find yourself picking up more? How would you answer that question for you?
0: Is About it, equal for me. Is it? I like both fiddle and banjo enough to spend a little time with each one of them every day. Well,
1: how what's the difference between them? How do they make you feel the difference between when you're playing the banjo and when you're playing
0: the fiddle? Uh, I just I like the tone of each. They have their own voice. They're like uh, individual people. They each have their own voice and their own means of expression and uh, means of of uh, Melody on uh, banjo, you have the drone string, the fifth string, uh, that adds another dimension to what you do, and you can play arrangements that include the uh, fifth string as a harmony string, and also as a uh, using finger rolls like Earl Scruggs. The dynamics you put into the uh, syncopation of your finger rolls is built largely around the fifth string. So uh, that's an interesting part of the banjo and uh, an interesting difference in how the sound comes out as opposed to a four-string banjo. And uh, fiddle or violin, uh, it, it has its own dynamics. And it's amazing to me that all the music that's been written for symphony orchestras and, and popular music and uh, bluegrass music and old-time music and uh, folk music. that The fiddle is a central character in that. And, and you think about all of those different notes and arrangements all on about uh, 12 inches of ebony, all those notes on that little bitty stick of wood that produce all those amazing things. So fiddle is is special. I think it's the king of instruments.
1: And not to belabor the point about the the kind of moods that these instruments elicit in us. Mm -hmm. Dwight Diller, the banjo Mm -hmm. player who uh, also plays fiddle, and I knew him many years ago when I first met him. One point I was learning to play the fiddle, and he looked at me and he said, Joey said, if you're feeling kind of down in the dumps and you pick up a banjo, he said, you always just feel a little bit better playing it. He said, but you pick up a fiddle when you're down in the dumps, you go off and shoot yourself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember uh, when I was working with Bill Monroe, I was, of course, living in Niceville, and I was having breakfast at the uh, Clarkston Hotel coffee shop, and a lot of the opera people would come in there and have breakfast and or a sandwich during the day or something and uh i was having my coffee and porter wagner walked in and waved his hand up at me and said how's the friendly five today ah. <laughs> he called the banjo the friendly five
1: yeah that's great that's great and i think there was a a, a peanuts strip at, where uh Snoopy, I think, or something, said every child born should be issued a banjo at birth. <laughs> <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> especially in these times boy, when people are just talking about getting down in the dumps. Yeah. That's what's going on in so many areas of our society, the banjo. Yeah, it's depressing so, at times. It, it is, it is. And I, and I think these are sources of joy. And, and a large part of my interest in this project has been to talk to people who use these objects and what the relationship to the objects are, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and how, you know, is it possible to create enchantment, to lift somebody's spirits, to give them a maybe a, a different idea of well, what's a banjo possible?
0: banjo has that ability. Of course, it, it can beat you over the head too. Yeah. Uh, some some banjos are a little bit over the top, I think sometimes. But that's all part of the the big story of the banjo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: The other night we said, yeah, somebody said, well, yeah, my banjo's kind of heavy. It's got a big resonator on the back. I said, well, it's good in a bar fight.
0: (laughs) Reminds me of that cartoon of the maestro going, instead of to heaven, he went to the other place, and they put him in a room full of banjo players. (laughs) Welcome to hell, maestro. (laughs) About 200 banjo players.
1: All smiling. Oh, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) When he came in. (laughs) Well, let's go back to that story. Uh, Just to wind up the story you were talking about, Roy Acuff, uh, you wound up having the opportunity, I would imagine, to have met him?
0: Yes. I I didn't get really personally acquainted with him, but we did speak on a couple of occasions, and it was very congenial. I went into the uh, Clarkston Hotel coffee shop one morning, and it was full, and uh, he was sitting at a little two-person table and had a chair, and he motioned me to come over and sit down, and so that was kind of him, and we talked about music and how a band that I had played with in Lynchburg, Virginia had opened for him at the Coliseum in Lynchburg, and he remembered that, remembered the the fellow that was the leader of our group real well. They had a good association.
1: And how you had worked on his campaign, too. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) So take me back. You know, I I obviously have gotten away from the straight narrative. You're playing the music. uh, You're coming into your adulthood. And uh, you're making some decisions about what you're going to do with your life. And there's this possibility of music. And then there's what was your other work? What were the other things you were thinking Uh,
0: about? Well, first of all, I was trying to learn to play the banjo from my grandmother. And she played the old frailing drop-thumb style. And I turned the radio on one morning in 1954, and I heard Earl Scruggs for the first time. And that just threw a switch for me. And that's what I wanted to do, was try to play like Earl Scruggs. So I was on a new path at that point. And uh, Don Reno helped me a lot. He's very kind to work with me and help me and show me things. But I kept working at it, and Don arranged for my audition with Monroe. But... um, my father had other plans for me. He wanted me to go to college, of course, and and uh, have a good, responsible life ahead of me. And uh, I said, I had the opportunity to go to MIT. I wanted to be a civil engineer. And, and uh, it came to the point of being an engineer playing the banjo. And I loved the banjo so much that I chose to play the banjo, so I didn't go to MIT. <laughs> I later went to school and studied accounting, got a degree in accounting, and uh, worked in that and computer stuff for many years. But uh, I always played the banjo and the fiddle on the weekends and my spare time.
1: Now, your grandparents that you talked about that played, were they the parents of your father or your mother?
0: My mother. They are your mother's people. The, well, my mother's... Mother played the I... banjo and my father's father played the fiddle. Oh. Uh, there were two different sides of the family, but both with uh, traditional musical interest.
1: Okay. I misunderstood that. And uh,
0: Well that's easy to misunderstand.
1: Well, but they would they play together?
0: No. No, they were too far apart. My mother's uh. family was in Harriman, Tennessee, and my father's family was in Silar City, North Carolina. Oh yeah. So it was a great distance back then. And so
1: your father hadn't picked up this interest. So his father's the fiddler.
0: His father was the fiddler, and and my father had no interest in music at all.
1: Now he's got a son. I love how this thing does skip a generation often. You know, and he's (laughs) looking at you saying, "MIT, son, don't you understand what that means?" Yeah, yeah. You're saying, "But dad, there's music." Yeah, that's great. So what happened after you had gotten gotten up to speed on the banjo? And obviously, you've bring you've brought a whole different approach to the banjo than other players I have heard that I can really appreciate what they're doing. But I, I hear a similarity in terms of you know that Scruggs style mm-hmm. um, and the way it's used in the bluegrass ensemble. Mm-hmm. And uh, your music isn't like that.
0: Earl's uh, music was very dynamic and uh, syncopated and beautiful, great tone, great choice of notes. And he was so creative in uh how he pr- approached playing a melody and then when somebody's singing the backup that he would do is so different and so wonderful and he thought all that stuff up and uh, I don't think he gets near the credit he should get for his backup playing but he was a magnificent banjo player I think the best that's ever been uh, to my opinion and to, to my liking but um Earl had started out playing thumb and finger, two-finger style, and and he, as a child, I think he was eight or nine years old, he finally figured out how to play Reuben with three-fingers syncopated roll. And he was so excited, he jumped up and ran into the kitchen and told his mother, I've got it, I've got it. <laughs> so he had Reuben all figured out. And uh, I've, I've noticed in really paying attention to Earl's playing that he did still incorporate some two-finger movements within the three-finger rolls, and uh, mm-hmm. that's, that's something that's missed quite often by, by lots of folks. They are, they're all going for three-finger rolls and don't leave out the quarter notes. But uh, Earl left a little space here and there that created an interest and uh, lifted up a melody to another level, I think. But uh, that was was part of my thinking and trying to do things. But I moved from Tennessee to Ohio on my computer job. And when I moved to Ohio, I didn't know any musicians. And so I'd just be at home with my banjo and my fiddle. And I started thinking about the wonderful tunes my grandmother had played in the old claw hammer and drop thumb and thumb and finger style and uh, I started tuning my banjo instead of the typical Bluegrass G tuning mm-hmm. to uh, the old-time old, old time tuning of what's called double C, where the second string goes up a note and the bass goes down two notes. And uh, it, it just created a whole different opportunity to write new tunes because playing Bluegrass, you get in habits of how you lead into something and how you move around, and it all begins to sound very similar. But in double C... All that opportunity goes away, and you have to figure out a new way to do it. So uh, it it just uh, opened up a big door of opportunity to write new tunes that sounded old.
1: And you're getting that drone effect, which goes back to the bagpipes, goes back to these older musical forms, don't
0: they? You get get drones, uh, your fifth string, your third string, your bass string, your second string, all within the C chord. And when you're playing high notes up the neck, you can get these low drones underneath them, and uh, build off of that. Mm-hmm. Creates a bigger dimension, bigger sweep of sound. I'm very interested also, and we to talk about the violin
1: because the project's mm-hmm. rousing the bow. Although sometimes I have been tempted to expand this project and call it moving air, mm-hmm. because just music itself so fascinates me, and really that's all we're doing is moving air. And yep. I talked to some physicist and he said, you're moving very small amounts of air. You'd be so surprised how uh-huh. few molecules of air that are moved and yet emotionally move us as a species so yes. deeply. It's, it's a marvel, so uh, so my interest is broad, but um, rosin the bow, violins, this box that you said, this magical king of instruments possibly that also has all this associated mythology with it, um, you know, from the Selling Your Soul to the Devil, the classics and the ghosts and all Pe- the stuff that comes with it.
0: Paganini.
1: And then also the, uh, the special violin found in the unlooked-for place, the Pearl of Great Worth. I mean, almost biblical often these stories, you'll hear somebody saying how that violin came to them or came back to them after it had been stolen. Yes, and you'd mentioned this earlier.
0: Yeah, from your book, the Phantom yeah. Fiddler.
1: Yeah, what was that story you related to that in terms of?
0: Well, the uh, man had his grandfather's fiddle, as I recall, or his father's fiddle, and uh, some river pirates. The <laughs> river pirates stole it from him on he's on the river, and and they robbed him, took all of his stuff, including the fiddle, and he finally got down to the end of the river i get in new orleans or somewhere down in there and and uh he found the pirate and so he became acquainted with a local uh not policeman but uh, i forget what to call him now yeah. but uh they went and uh, arrested the guy and got his fiddle back and his other things too but the main thing is he got the fiddle back and my grandfather's fiddle would mean that much to me if somebody were to steal it. I would, wouldn't, wouldn't rest until I found it.
1: Yes. Yeah. That, that uh, we did a lot of uh, interviews, series of interviews, in Milwaukee with people involved with this theft of the Lipinski Stradivari violin, mm-hmm. that happened a couple of years back, from Frank Almond, who is the concertmaster for the Milwaukee Symphony who was tased, a fellow used a taser. So it was a violent uh, Mm. theft, which is very unusual in the musical Uh world. Instruments do go, get lifted, as they say, but usually it's backstage or it's left in a taxi cab or something. And people often say, well, how can musicians do that? How can they leave instruments, valuable instruments, or they don't understand what they're worth. But musicians are musicians too. Their minds on something else when they're playing music. I know how I feel after a show. You're, you're kind of spaced out a little bit. You, you've been in a different yeah, place. Yeah, you
0: are in a different space, totally.
1: Yeah, so you know, leaving a violin can happen. and uh, But this is where they used a taser uh, and knocked him down. What was it was 50,000 volts of electricity and then stole the violin, but they got it back. This idea of right recovering the, uh, the instrument that's been lost. And uh, any stories like that you've heard along the way and the people you've met in, in the music world?
0: No, no, not really. Uh, I I know Kenny Baker had a fiddle stolen years ago, and they never found it. They never did? Uh -uh.
1: Do you know what kind of fiddle it was?
0: No, I don't. I don't
1: remember. Going back to your story, do you remember the exact moment when you said, it's not going to be MIT, it's going to be music? That's the main focus of your life.
0: When uh, Don Reno told me that Bill Monroe was looking for a banjo player. Uh, That was an opportunity to get into some serious company and really have the ability to learn to be a good banjo player, hopefully.
1: So how'd that happen?
0: Well, well, Don, uh, Don told me he was looking for a banjo player, and he said, I can arrange an audition for you. I've already talked to Bill about you. But I want you to know that this is what you want to do, and I want your father to be okay with it. And I said, well, I know my father isn't going to like that idea. And uh, I said, would you be willing to talk to him? So Don called my father, and uh, I'm sure he said something like, let him go down there and fall on his face. He'll be home in a month and go back to school. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so you were, I, you were how old at that point? I was uh, 18. And so I went to Nashville. Uh, Don took me to Preston Glen Airport and put me on a plane, and I flew to Nashville and got down there and uh, got a room at the Clarkston Hotel, which was next door to WSM, and that's where the audition was to be the next day. So uh, that, that morning I woke up and wanted to be as presentable as possible, so I, I was shaving. And back in that day you had the old safety razor, which was a real thin blade that you put into a little assembly, tightened the handle up. And, and in the nervousness of it all, uh, the blade slipped and I cut my middle finger right dead center, and blood just gushed out. Your left hand. My left hand. Oh, and uh, so <laughs> I thought, oh, I'm doomed now. Yeah. But anyway, I got ready and went on over to WSM and Bill and Bessie and Jack Cook appeared. Jack Cook played guitar and uh, we, we met and I was as nervous as I could be. And So Bill said, now we'll play some tunes here. And he started singing some of his material. And, uh, he asked if I'd ever worked with the mandolin before. And I said, well, yes, some, certainly not to the, uh, degree that that this would be, but, uh, we started playing and Don had, Don Reno taught me bluegrass stuff and his style, which was pretty flashy, flashy stuff. And, uh, so I was taking my breaks in Reno's style of playing and, uh, Bill stopped and he said, you know, he said, uh, he said uh, Don Reno, he's a fine banjo player. But uh, I'd really rather have somebody that played a little bit like some of these other fellows. You wouldn't say Earl Scruggs. They were kind of having a feud at the time. So he wouldn't <laughs> mention Earl by name, but I knew exactly what he meant. And uh, he said, Bessie and I are going out for a sandwich. We'll be back in a few minutes and we'll do it again. Jack, you stay here with Tony. So Jack Cook stayed, and, and Jack, as soon as the door shut, said, now, he was talking about Earl Scruggs, and I said, I knew it, I knew it. He said, well, let's run through this stuff again and uh, play it more toward the way Earl plays, which is what I started out learning. So I just backed up from Reno style back into Scruggs style, and uh, Bill came back, and we did some of the same stuff over, and I played more like Earl's style of playing and Bill said that sounds more like it and uh, so (laughs) he said now we're going to have dinner this evening we'll invite you to have dinner with us and uh, but I'll tell you there's two other banjo players in town wanting the job and they're going to audition later this afternoon so uh, I thought well I'm doomed again so uh that evening I met him for for dinner and Oh, I I forgot about the uh, cut finger situation where I'd cut my finger on the razor blade, middle finger, right on the tip. And when I was auditioning, (laughs) as banjo players know, you slide your middle finger up the third string quite often, and that third string had worked its way right into the cut. So my finger was bleeding as I was playing the banjo. The blood was (laughs) coming out. (laughs) And Monroe noticed that. He said, what happened there? And I said, well, I cut myself shaving this morning, and the string is getting into the cut and making it bleed. And he looked at it, and he said, hmm. That's all he said. <laughs> no sympathy or anything. <laughs> but knowing him, I, I later realized he appreciated the fact that I wasn't complaining about it, and I was just toughing it through the the situation. He was a rugged old man. <laughs>
1: That's a great story. Yeah, so you wouldn't had dinner with him, and then he so, said, "Oh, and there uh, were the two other. There were two other fellows that, in the running.
0: There were two other banjo players auditioning the same afternoon. So I, I joined them for dinner that evening, and we were sitting there talking about the audition and the potential for a job. And and uh, I, when I arrived, uh, Bessie came in, and I pulled a chair out at the table, and she sat. And put, I, pushed the chair in for, I was on my best behavior, using my best manners. And uh, Bill said, you know, said uh, both these other banjo players that audition, they both play better than you do. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. that's not surprising. And uh, he said, but Bessie likes you, so you got the job. <laughs> that's great. So uh, Bessie put in a good work for me, and, and I got the job. Did you did you sing
1: as part of that?
0: I sang baritone mostly and bass at some points, d- depending on what we were doing and who was in the group. Did you ever do any solo singing? No. no. Yeah. How, how many years were you with Bill? Two and a half. That's ah, great education. W- with, with a couple of minor breaks in the, that two and a half years. If you measured it minute to minute, it's probably like two and a quarter years.
1: And I'm guessing, and because uh, again, I'm not that knowledgeable about bluegrass itself, what was going on, but I would think that his career was back, was coming back very strong at that time.
0: Within- it was just beginning to when I left. Uh-huh. Uh, I decided we were playing in uh, St. Paul at the Flame Club and were there for a week. And uh, I decided at that point that. Uh, I probably needed to get serious and get back to doing something that was more substantial and I could earn an income, livable income at, and not be uh, just struggling along as a itinerant musician, so to speak. And so I turned in my notice up there uh, when we were at the Flame Club and uh, went back to school and uh, quit music for a long time. But uh, that was the end of my musical career professionally at that point.
1: And here we are in eastern Kentucky up in the mountains, Carter Cave State Park.
0: Isn't this wonderful? Yeah, it's wonderful.
1: And right outside the door, we're getting the most pleasant summer rain. It's just started. So I think we'll push that door a little closed. and uh, But just about that much. There you go. (laughs) 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 So back to the fiddle. Now, you were playing violin even back then.
0: Not violin, just fiddle. Okay, well. My sister played violin. Uh... And I'd sneak her fiddle out to the chicken coop or the barn and try to learn how to play it, and she'd catch me, and I'd get in trouble. So eventually she got a real nice Italian fiddle, and I got my grandfather's fiddle so I could play it.
1: Well, who was playing fiddle for Monroe at the time that you were on tour with him?
0: Bobby Hicks was leaving. He would turned in his notice as I was going in, So uh, Bill had several fiddlers. He had uh, Bobby Lester, uh, Dale Potter, Red Stanley, Benny Williams, Mm -hmm. and uh, Kenny Baker played some with us.
1: Did any of them mentor you on the fiddle? Would you get on when you're on tour in the motel rooms? Would Kenny Baker showed
0: me a couple of things uh, that I'd asked about. How did you do this or how did you do that? And he'd show me.
1: You Didn't have your grandfather's fiddle at that time, no your grandfather was no. still alive and playing it.
0: Uh, well, he no, he was gone, but my sister had the instrument at that time. Oh, okay, but so, I still loved the fiddle, so I was asking questions of everybody that could answer a question for me. Did you have one with you as you traveled? No, just had the banjo, mm-hmm. and
1: so when did you? get your first violin was it your grandfather's or did it you get another violin to start with
0: i got another violin i got a fiddle from uh joe meadows and uh, we traded a fiddle for a banjo i had an old gibson rb 100 and i swapped it for the fiddle wow. and uh, kept it for a while what kind what kind of fiddle? It what was a, of fiddle what it kind of fiddle it was an old german frechner pretty much a piece of junk but uh it was an old fiddle. It wasn't a newer one. I ended up giving it to Mac McGahey. He used it for years. So, uh,
1: Isn't it funny how some violins will suit one person and not another person? Yeah,
0: that's just really funny.
1: Yeah. So then when, when did the, besides your grandfather's violin, when did the first violin come into your hands that just really changed your understanding of the instrument, what you could do with it?
0: That's hard to say. I've had so many. Uh probably uh a, a fiddle I had one time it was handmade American fiddle that I liked real well. It was made out of uh walnut wood instead of maple mm. and it was a wonderful fiddle
1: i've I've talked to some violin makers and they they do say other woods can work mm-hmm. but we're we're so married to the idea mm. that it has to be maple because that's tried and true yeah right that's yeah. how that's how it was done i have a friend who just made a his a violin maker uh scott marks made one out of the most interesting piece of willow the back just mm. like the way the grain moves all around you wonder how it would resonate and yeah. it's just the sweetest fiddle it really is so uh you had that What whatever happened to that violin is that one that do, do you get that i do I'll trade off a violin all the time <laughs> and then you're like why did I do that
2: you
1: know, I've that... been
0: lucky enough to have a couple of those come back to me which I have in my little collection now I have a violin made in uh, 1706 or 1806 I'm sorry it's a nice old Austrian fiddle and I have another old violin that was repaired in 1830 in Denmark that is a mid to late 1700s Mittenwald fiddle. It's a real sweet little fiddle, so. So um,
1: this idea, let's, let's just pursue this a little bit longer. We've talked about having a violin stolen and what that would be like mm-hmm. and how you'd be searching to get it back if it was a violin you really cared very much about. Uh, but this idea of violins that you traded off at a time thinking, well, you know, this other instrument, a little bit like Aladdin and the lamp, You know new lamps for old or whatever, you know, something comes along. <laughs> yeah. I traded off an old Hoff fiddle. And I'm sure it was just a, absolutely an old factory made. Might even had a carved bass bar in it Probably. rather than its own bass bar. But it just had this sound, this open woody mm-hmm. sound that I did love. But um, this violin shop had a Roth. That's when Roth's, when Joe Dobbs was advertising, uh-huh. for, you know, the, the, that fiddle and he'd be on the cover, Fretz Magazine or whatever get you a new Roth violin from Germany. You know, they're really made to play. And I wound up trading that violin off on trade because it took more money to get the Roth, and I didn't have enough, so I had to trade the violin. But that's one later I thought, I shouldn't let that one go.
0: Yep, I've known that to happen quite often.
1: Yeah, Give me one or two examples of of violins you went after to trade back and get back.
0: Well, the... uh... The, the fiddles that uh, I've traded have gone to fellow collectors, and uh, we tend to get tired of a fiddle after a while or find another one we like a little better and uh, sometimes trade back. And a buddy of mine named Bob Glenn, he's passed away now, but he and I traded a lot with each other. And he had an old fiddle that I regretted letting go. And uh, he... he uh, Came back one day, he, he liked a particular instrument that I had. He said, what do you want for this? I said, well, you still have that old fiddle I traded you last time you were down here? Yeah. I said, in fact, it's out in the car. I said, "We'll go get it and we'll trade. So we did. So I got my fiddle back. There's a great joke sort of along
1: that line, which I can't resist not telling. The uh, two fellows that are ra- both raised horses, that was their livelihood, horse trading. Raising horses, and one comes over and sees this new foal, and says, "Oh, that's a beautiful horse." He said, uh, "I'd like to buy that horse from you." Oh, I don't know if I want to sell it. He says, "Well, I'll give you two hundred dollars for it." And so well, I'll, I'll take two fifty. So he buys it, and then six months goes by, and that fellow sold it. it's over at his friend's house. Sees that foals now six months later. so oh, that is a beautiful animal. What did I ever sell that to you for? <laughs> you know, I regret it. I'll give you four hundred dollars for it." Oh, I don't know. I'll take four fifty, <laughs> and then he buys it back, and then he buys it back again, and it gets mm-hmm. bought three or four or five times, and then until some guy from Texas shows up, he's got a big wad of money. He sees the horse now, you know, a yearling or a two-year-old, and says, "Oh, that's a beautiful horse." He said, "I'll give you five thousand dollars for it." The fellow sells it to him, and he says, uh, "Now, where where can I buy other horses?" Oh, down the road here's my friend. He sells horses, and he rides down there. And He's got the big horse trailer behind his big truck. And the fellow looks and sees that horse, and he said, where'd you get that horse? He said, well, I just bought it from your neighbor. And he jumps in his pickup truck, and he runs up there, you know, just throwing the gravel, and he jumps out and says, what the hell are you selling that horse for? We were making a damn good living off that horse.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Joe Dobbs used to joke about an old instrument that I had that had a repair in it. I'd used it on the Masters of the Banjo Tour when I sat in on a couple of things playing fiddle. And it was a very interesting looking old thing. It had a lot of serious repair work. And uh, I traded it to Joe and he'd sell it and then it'd come back and then he'd trade it back to me. And and (laughs) eventually I'd take it back and he'd take it on another. He used to joke about us making a living off of that fiddle.
1: Oh, he did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's about the truth of it, you know. so this violin you told me about that uh, was sent to you recently from, from Wales, I guess. Yes. Yeah, tell me about this relationship with this person and how this thing showed up and what it's all about.
0: Uh, John Less uh, is a wonderful Welshman folk singer. Plays banjo and uh, mandolin and guitar. And he's, he's getting a little ageable like me. And uh, we've been best friends for many years. And uh, he called me here a while back. Louise and I were celebrating our, was the 27th, 25th, 25th wedding anniversary. Our 27th is coming up. Yeah. Okay. And uh, he said, you know, I never did give you all a wedding gift. I'm going to send you something in the mail. So uh, all of a sudden, here's the box in the mail. And it's a beautiful beautiful uh, French fiddle with Shakespeare on the scroll. And the back has a marquetry inlay that's very neat and precise and just absolutely stunningly beautiful. And it sounds as good as it looks. And what a nice gift that was.
1: Now, some people think that's a funny gift to give for for a wedding present, a violin for the the husband or... That's, that's a really nice idea.
0: Louise appreciates the instrument as much as I do, not for its playing ability, but for the beauty of it. So she's laid claim to it, and she said, that that fiddle will never go anywhere. So after I'm gone, she'll hang on to it. And eventually, uh, one of these days when she goes over the edge, uh, it'll, it'll end up somewhere, but I have no idea where.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Do you have children? Yes. And and are any of them musicians?
0: My son is a fantastic guitarist, but no interest in the fiddle. And my daughter played fiddle for a short time and this lost interest in it. And uh, her children have shown some interest, but none seriously. It's just a passing fad sort of thing. But you never know when they'll come back to it. That's absolutely true. And so I'm I'm on the fence about what to do with my grandfather's fiddle. Uh, He wanted to stay in the family if it could, and it may have reached that point now where that opportunity is closing the door, and uh, it may end up going somewhere else. Byron Burline out in Oklahoma uh, has expressed an interest in it on several occasions. He always smiles and says, you still have that fiddle?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting. As a fiddler, it's it's true. You, You pick up an instrument, you, over the course of time, you just always are picking up instruments. Somebody will hand one over to you. Or, you know, try this one, or you're in a store, mm-hmm. and uh, many of them you'll, you 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 bring. You'll say, "Oh, that that that's got a nice up high end, or or it has this quality to it." And uh, but once in a while, I put one under your chin for the shortest amount of time. You'll never forget it. You'll know it'll, it. You, it will speak like, to you. Yeah, it's like your mind knows that that violin is out there someplace. There was one in a shop in Paris like that. I have no idea. I never even looked at the label. I wouldn't know ever how to find it, but I'll always remember that violin. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's another one that uh, a maker made that I did interview before I'd ever played the instrument. And it was at Char Music. I I saw they had instruments made by modern makers in kind of the back room. And uh, I said, oh, you know, here are three people I've already interviewed. And I picked up one, and it was a good violin. I picked up "Oh, These are nice. I picked up this one by Giorgio Garzales, who lives in Cremona. And I Just a couple notes on it. And then later I, I called. You know, it was out of my price range. And uh, I called up later. I said, what do you know what I have? Oh, oh, that just went to the Potter violin shop in, Mar- in Maryland.
2: So uh-huh.
1: I, I'm like tracking where it is, you know. <laughs> I'm sure it get sold to somebody. Uh, that's the passion. These these are um, there's stories associated with them. There's there's a connection we make with these objects themselves. I don't know what it is. They're uh, they open a door to something for us. Yes, the portal do. that we go through.
0: They're amazing. They're wonderful instruments. I think the violin is the the most wonderful of all, and the banjo's up there pretty close. But the violin's right at the top.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, it's been a, a wonderful talk. Is there anything else you'd want to talk about or other stories about the violin? Or
0: No, uh, I just hope uh, at some point you get to hear a young fiddler named Johnny Statz. And I think you will eventually run into Johnny. Johnny's a UPS truck driver who is a fantastic fiddler. He's, he's a mandolin player by trade, but he's kind of switching over to the fiddle. He's falling in love with the fiddle. He's got the sickness, as we say. Yeah. But uh, I hope you get to hear Johnny Stats play a fiddle one of these days. He's, he's the next up and coming top fiddler, I think.
1: Well, you know, I take that seriously coming from you because, uh, and maybe these are my prejudices, but I have heard some incredibly gifted violinists and fiddlers in terms of technique can do just about anything. But there's something else you're listening for. And when you hear that, it's, uh, and how do you define what that is? It's, it's a, I don't know. One time I was at a festival and there was a young guy got up. He must've been 18 and God, he could just play and play. And the crowd loved him. I mean, he got the crowd going. He could play fast and play good. And he had good backup and people were just really going on. Clapping and yelling and standing up. I was in the sound tent where the board was. And um, I liked what he did, but it it, it didn't touch me, it didn't move me at all. But I didn't know why. And uh, hopefully it wasn't envy that I couldn't play like that or something. (laughs) So I turned to the guy next to me who's probably in his 60s and big bearded fellow. And I said, What do you think? And he said, Well, he's not had his heart broken yet. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I understand that. The, uh, the, the thing about really, really good fiddlers, convincing performance fiddlers, is uh, you, you have a choice of notes, the, your taste of the notes that you play, the ability to play them correctly and not hit sour notes, uh, your choice of uh, phrasing, how you do that, the tone that you get out of the instrument, and, uh, of course, your knowledge of playing certain tunes. But I think the the final ingredient is the fire that you put into it. And Johnny plays with fire. He can really play. Last question. Any
1: particular location, uh, space, acoustic space, whether it was the Grand Old Opera or... We mentioned here we're at Carter Caves. We mm-hmm. went down yesterday with a fiddler down down below. There's this wonderful, uh, huge, huge cave with wonderful acoustics. If I can lure you down there with your grandfather's fiddle, I would really like to get you playing down there. It's not, I
0: try to stay out of caves. Well, this is a big one. Right? My wife wants to go in the cave, but not me. This is just a tenth of a mile
1: down the path right here. It's right uh-huh. under this hotel.
0: I'm getting too old and wobbly oh, to walk that far.
1: All righty. But... Uh, he, he played there, and uh, the acoustics were great, and we recorded mm-hmm. that. Either it was a moment that everything was special for some other reason, or it was the acoustic space itself. Acoustics. One or two memories of, of playing the fiddle that you'll never forget that moment.
0: Oh, playing the fiddle. I was yeah. thinking banjo, but playing the fiddle. Uh, probably uh, Library of Congress. The the sound there was fantastic, yeah. and the acoustics were fantastic.
1: Kind of appropriate. It was began as Thomas Jefferson's library.
0: Well, yeah, and
1: he was a great lover of the violin. Yeah.
0: So that that was uh, one of the memories I have of great acoustics and great sound, both for banjo and fiddle.
1: Well, thank you very much. Still thank over. you.
0: It's been a pleasure.
1: Oh, good. Thanks. Tony composed a slow air that he named after a town in Scotland. Let's listen to him now perform The Plankton Air. And so this is Louise Atkins now, who's the wife of Tony Ellis. Yes,
3: and I'm extending an invitation to you and anyone who really loves fiddles and viol and violins to visit our hit Tony's Fiddle Shop at our home in Circleville, Ohio. He has a wonderful little shop, and and I will say, because he will not say, that he has a, a really wonderful reputation both amongst classical people and fiddlers. He really knows how to set up an instrument, um, and they're they're very subtle things with with the bridge and the um, sound, all the different things and different strings, but he'll get an instrument and he'll set it up in a way that he thinks is optimal for that instrument, and he'll invariably come into the house and say, I know who'd love this instrument, and name the person, whether classical or fiddler, and invariably that person will come and visit and that's the one they pick out. (laughs) <laughs> so it's pretty you're, you're, amazing to me. Yeah, you're touching on committed. on
1: something that I've experienced myself. I, I play a fiddle right now that I uh, I walked into a shop that's my local shop and there's a younger fellow, like, uh, Ben Barnes, who's a luthier, works in the shop. He doesn't own the shop, but he's been there a long time. And he knew I was looking for a second violin, what I thought was going to be my second violin that I could retune uh, uh, when I cross tuning. I don't like to take I don't like to retune violins very much. It it affects the sound in a way for me. Some people don't mind at all. Thinks it improves them. In fact, changing them a lot. So I wanted a second violin. Didn't have a lot of money for one, but I was looking for one. And I'd picked up two or three instruments. They got a hundred instruments in there. And a couple a year went by. And I walk in one day, and he says, Joe, I got your violin. And as soon as I put it under my chin, it, it was the violin. That is a real skill. It's, it's, it's something I can't un- understand it. It's an intuitive sense. This is the right instrument for that person. And
3: for that person, because of the elements he's put into it, the bridge and, and, and string sound posts, This sometimes he'll say this instrument deserves better strings, so he'll put a different type of string. But he seems to know what different people like in those categories to the point where now he'll get an instrument and he'll call the person, I have a violin I think you would really like, and they'll come. <laughs> so that's pretty amazing to me. There's another story I wanted to tell you, and I'll start it, but I'll make Tony finish it, because I think this is the classic quest story oh, no. <laughs> for violin, and it was actually Tony's dream. Every time when we're traveling and we travel a lot, and we go past what looks like a vacant house, he'll say, "Oh, I bet there's a banjo in that attic. I bet there's a fiddle in that <laughs> attic." You know, and when we go into an antique shop, it's like he can smell them. You know, he just <laughs> zero in on them wherever they are. But anyway, this was a dream, Um, and we like to stop at flea markets and look around in antique shops. And in his dream, we went past a big flea market, and the whole field was full of violins, tables and tables and tables of fiddles. And so, of course, we, off the road we were, and he walked through this hall, this outside part, didn't find anything. as a good eye, but he didn't see anything he really liked. And we were ready to leave, and someone said, oh, the good ones are in the building. There was a big building there, so like a coliseum. So Tony went in the building and walked all around and found one that he especially liked. Well, we do carry cash, tend to have a nice little chunk of cash, because you can always do a better deal if you put cash in front of someone. And so he had some money with him. I should let you tell the rest of the story, Tony. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so he found, what was the amount? $3,500. $3, and we had 3000 with us. This was... So he found this one he liked and he picked it up. He really liked it. So he thought, well, he could really... So he made his offer, $3,000. The fellow said, nope, thirty-five. that's what it is. And Tony, you know, played again, thought about it, and he said, well, if I put this cash in front of he sees me count out this wad, he'll be more willing. So he got his cash out, counted out. He said, that's it, that's all I have, and we're just starting our trip, and I'm willing for you. Nope, 3500 that's it. So Tony reluctantly sighed and put his money back in his pocket and started to walk away. And the man said, oh, no, no, come back, come back. And uh, so... Tony said, okay, would you take 35? He said, well, I did notice, I do like your watch. And uh, so Tony took off his watch and he said, you know, those are really nice shoes you're wearing. (laughs) Tony took off his shoes and I really like that shirt. And uh, bottom line, and remember this was a dream. (laughs) Bottom line, Tony walked out of there stark naked holding this fiddle. (laughs) It's a great dream. <laughs> it's a great dream. I think it's classic. And, and this is and Tony's his, dream. And This is Tony's dream. And he and told his, you
1: about it in the morning. Oh, yeah. Oh. And the
3: rationale was, I didn't care. And Tony is a very modest person. So even imagining this was funny because he said, and I walked out of there and I didn't care because I knew if anyone knew anything about fiddles, they were looking at the fiddle and not at me. Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's really good. I think that's a classic dream. And I will have to say it was in Scotland. Oh, and
1: the dream's in Scotland. Well, that's why he wouldn't take any less. He's he's really gonna trade. He's gonna trade you right down to your your socks.
3: We then went to a wonderful um, shop in uh, in Edinburgh, Stringers Violins. Beautiful place. And indeed, Tony found one and had this look in his eye. <laughs> and so I had to ask him, you know, would you strip for that? <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah, well, dreams can't be prophetic. Yeah. They can be. He did find one wasn't that long <laughs> after.
1: I, I love it.
3: And especially because, I mean, Tony's described it as, as Really, a violin or a fiddle is a fifth appendage. It is part of your body more than other instruments. It just becomes a part of you. And I think that's very true. And you can see it when someone really is at one with their instrument. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project, to hear additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. And let me finish now with a quote from Wanda Ladowska. I love my music because it is most important to love something in life. To be in love with something. If I were not in love with my music, what could I do? Nothing.